Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Um, If you have your Bible and want to turn to Matthew chapter 4, that's where we're going to land in a minute. We'll read that scripture together. We are in a uh, series called How to Miss God's Voice, where we are learning how to actually listen for the voice of God. And it is good to be here together with you today, good to worship with you. Cannot believe it's the last Sunday in April, oh my goodness, around the seminary. That always means finals are coming up, which it's way better to be a professor than a student, I'll tell you that. I like finals coming up better on this side of the, uh, the equation. But in the spirit of that, I thought we could start today with a little pop quiz. And it's probably one that you'll do okay. It's a grocery store pop quiz, okay? So I just have one item, and it, I want you to turn to the people you're with and just tell them where you think you would find this item, okay, or maybe what it's by. But I'm talking about the pie dough that you get that's like by Pillsbury, and like it's ready to go. You could make a pie this afternoon. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, where do you think you'd find that at the grocery store? Maybe buy something like you could name. Where, where do you think it would be? Somebody, somebody tell me what your answer is. What's that? With, did somebody say biscuits? Is that what? Yes, because it's Pillsbury and biscuits. You are correct. That is where you'd find it in the refrigerated section. My question is, where were y'all a few months ago when I had to go to the store? All right, if y'all knew that, why didn't y'all tell me? Because that is not where I thought you would find it at all. So here's the situation. My wife sends me to the grocery store because she was going to make something, I think a chicken pot pie, and we needed some pie crust. And so she sent me to the store and said, get the kind that I can use this afternoon. And in my head, I thought those were found in the freezer section. They're not. We've established that, right? But that doesn't mean that I didn't try to find them in the freezer section. I didn't will them to be in the free. I knew they were in the freezer section, and so I was going to search high and low for them. I got to the freezer aisle, and I started looking, and the first place I checked was in breakfast. I don't know why I connect pie dough and breakfast. I think that's my vision of heaven, right? That when everything is made right, somehow pie and breakfast will be connected. That's just what I thought. I looked, there's no pie dough, uh, like the kind that I needed in the breakfast section. So I looked uh, like around a few doors down, couldn't find it. I went over into the dessert aisle. It's not there either. I started looking around where the frozen fruit is thinking, well, you kind of use that sometimes for pie. Maybe it's there. It's not there. Now, remember, it's not anywhere in the frozen section. But again, I thought that it was. So I'm looking and I'm looking. I'm checking random places. Maybe it's by the pizza. Maybe it's by the hash browns. Maybe it's by the tater tots. It is none of those places but I find something eventually, and it's, uh, I believe they call it like a dough puck, all right? So it is a solid frozen piece of pie dough that takes anywhere from 24 hours to six months to defrost. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's the kind of thing that if you want a pie on July 4th, go get one of those, set it out in the sun right now, it might be ready. Who knows? It's still uh, up for grabs. But I got a couple of those thinking, you know what, I couldn't find what my wife wanted, but she's got to at least be impressed with my resourcefulness that I would have brought these home. 
wives out there, are you impressed with that kind of resourcefulness? No, not at all, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Because what's the other thing I could have done? Asked somebody at the store? Well, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. I would never do such a thing. I get these little frozen solid blocks of ice and I bring them home and I hand them to my wife as though I have just like conquered the world. Look what I found. I tried to blame it on the pandemic because that's a good excuse now for anything. Like, the store was just out of them, right? Like, we believe that in the post-pandemic world that supply chains get messed up and maybe pie crust is like the new toilet paper that like it's just gone like they don't have them anymore uh she wasn't buying it at all she asked well where did you look I said in the freezer section of course she looked at me and thought why why did I marry you why choices have I made in my life she didn't say any of that out loud she did say why would you look in the freezer section I said because that's where you find pie dough and she said no it's not and she explained where it was She was not impressed with my effort, though I had gone to great lengths to find that. I had looked everywhere. I had checked all of the cases. I had looked, but it turns out that my effort, when it was like focused in the wrong direction, really didn't matter, right? I had all the intentions of going to the store and finding this pie dough. It turns out those intentions were not really all that important at all. And an effort and intention, as good as they were, When they're focused on the wrong thing, they really didn't do much to solve our problem in that moment. In this series, How to Miss God's Voice, I hope that we will grapple with that idea because sometimes we are better actually at missing God's voice than we are at hearing God's voice. And it's not because you have bad intentions. It's not because you woke up this morning and thought, you know what, I hope that I don't hear God speak to me today. You didn't wake up this morning and just thought, you know what, I hope that God has nothing to say to me and I could just kind of make it through figuring things out on my own. Nobody woke up that day. In fact, many of us have the best of intentions when it comes to hearing God's voice. And many of us, we truly are willing to expend some effort to hear God's voice. It's just so often that our effort and our intentions are not focused on the right things. That our effort and intentions, as good and positive as they are, can actually be in the wrong direction. And energy and effort and intentions, when they are in the wrong direction, don't lead to the outcomes that we want. And that's why so many times we miss God's voice. Last week, we looked at the story of Elijah and realized that it is possible for us to miss God's voice because we can expect it in the wrong place that we can actually go to the wrong sources and we can strain hard to hear a word that will not come because God is not in that thing. That's not how God speaks to us. And today, we are going to look at this story from the early parts of Jesus's ministry, the very beginning, right before he goes out into his public ministry. And so I'm gonna ask, if you are able, we haven't done this in a while, but if you would stand with me as we read these verses from Matthew chapter four, verses one through 10, they will be on the screen, but let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. And this is what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple 
and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he was tempted to listen to a different voice. He was tempted to trade God's persistent word for other things. And each of these temptations is a type of half-truth. You see, that's how temptation works. It contains some element, some kernel of truth, but it isn't the full expression of truth. Friends, if you want to miss God's voice, one surefire way is to listen to half-truths instead of the persistent word of truth. Now, I need to warn you at the beginning, these temptations, when properly understood, should make us all uncomfortable because we have all faced these temptations and failed. That's actually one of the points of this story is that Jesus is showing us his superiority. You see, there are some things in the story. He wanders, he goes to the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, which is meant to call back to Israel wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. The temptations that Jesus faces mirror the same temptations that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. And what Jesus quotes are actually the words of God that were given to them in the wilderness. This whole story is meant to mirror the experiences of the Israelites and demonstrate Jesus' superiority as the one who succeeds when the rest of humanity fails. You see, these temptations, they're not trivial matters. In fact, they are the temptations that all of us face on a near daily basis. And these temptations are often why we miss God's voice. We may desire to hear his voice, but the faith required to trust God can wither when we are presented with opportunities like these temptations. And when we listen to these half-truths, when we give in to these temptations, we can miss God's voice. The first of the temptations, it says in verse three that the tempter comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right, that's the temptation. If you're the son of God, will you command these stones to become these loaves of bread? Now, the funny thing about this temptation is that on the surface, it doesn't actually seem to be all that bad, right? I mean, it's weird, it's strange, it's unnatural. We've never seen it happen But would it be wrong for Jesus to turn a stone into bread? I mean, it probably makes us uneasy, but think about that. Is that wrong? It actually sounds like kind of an amazing thing. Jesus hasn't eaten for nearly six weeks. Don't you think he's hungry? This would be a great way to solve that problem. And so even if we might say, well, yeah, I'm just not sure about it, we could probably all acknowledge that at the very least, this isn't going to hurt anybody else, right? I mean, nobody's even around. Nobody is going to have their lives altered if Jesus does this. He's out in the desert 
What's the big deal? Jesus, you're hungry, you've got a problem, this is a way to solve it. Turn a stone into bread, eat something, get your strength up, and then go do all the amazing things that God has called you to do. What's the harm? You see, that's actually the half-truth of this temptation. There's a, a Christian scholar and writer, Henry Nouwen, who has written extensively on these temptations, and he really helped me understand the core of what's happening in these temptations. And he says this temptation is the temptation to be relevant. That is to do something that is needed, to think that the most important thing in our lives is to be useful and focus on actions that can be appreciated by people. Nowen argues that this temptation is the temptation to make productivity the basis of our lives. I mean, now that can touch us right at the center of our identity. In a variety of ways, we all are made to believe that we are what we do or we are what we produce. And so this can lead to preoccupation with, you know, results or tangible goods or progress. And let me say specifically for me, I'm an Enneagram type three on the Myers-Briggs. I'm an ENTJ on the DISC profile. I am a D, which is the driver. Like productivity and getting things done is near and dear to my sense of self-worth. Like that's who I am. I like to be busy. I like to accomplish things. I like to see results. I like to get things done. And sometimes when I come home from work and my wife will ask me how my day was, sometimes I'll answer kind of like this. I'll say, you know, I was really busy all day, but I'm not quite sure what I got done. I was really busy all day, but I don't know exactly what I got done. Has anybody ever said something like that or felt that way? You're like, I really did spend eight hours at my job. I'm not sure what I accomplished, but I was really, really busy. Now, that statement is doing two things for me. First, it's a reminder to my wife, I am really, really busy, which must mean I'm really important, right? And I'm worth something because I'm busy and I'm doing things all day long. You see, that's where I think my worth comes from sometimes. But second, it's acknowledging that if she was to press a little harder and say, wait, you, didn't, you can't tell me what you got done? You didn't get anything accomplished? Did you even earn your paycheck today? I'd probably have to concede the point, right? It wasn't that amazing of a day because I didn't actually get anything done. I was really busy, but I can't exactly point to you what I accomplished I can't point to the results and show you and tell you for sure, this is how I was useful. Has anybody else ever felt that way or am I like alone in that sense of productivity? I doubt it because the temptation to be relevant is difficult for us to shake because for many of us, it doesn't feel like a temptation but a call you see, we make ourselves believe that we are called to be productive. We're called to be successful. We're called to be efficient people. I mean, aren't we supposed to do things that make people realize what a difference we're making in their lives? Aren't we supposed to go and heal the sick and feed the poor and alleviate the suffering of other people? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Jesus was faced with all of those same questions of worth. I mean, Jesus, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Don't you know how handy that would be? I mean, this would actually be the most useful and productive thing you could do all day. But instead of giving in, Jesus answered, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Jesus, in his answer, doesn't deny the importance of bread, but he puts it in its proper place in comparison with the nurturing power of the word of God. The half-truth tempts us to put things out of order. So we must remember, food is a good thing. God made it. God declared it to be good. But it's not the ultimate good. And Jesus isn't willing to trade the most important thing for the lesser thing. In the same way, your work, what you do, the things that you accomplish, those aren't unimportant things, but they must be put in their proper place. You see, we don't resist this temptation to think we're only as valuable as what we do. We don't resist that temptation to be relevant by doing irrelevant things. The opposite of finding our value and worth is, is like the answer to that is not just to spend our life on worthless tasks. No, the answer to it is clinging to the word of God who is the source of all relevant work and activity. When we get things out of order, we miss the wonderful message. We miss the voice of God that reminds us that he loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because he has created us and redeemed us in love. And so as followers of Jesus, we must be willing to detach ourselves completely from any need to be relevant, to find our worth only in what we do, and to trust ever more deeply in the voice of God. The second temptation says that the devil, the tempter, Satan, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. This is the temptation to do something spectacular. Do something that will get your name in the news cycle, Jesus. I mean, people will definitely talk about you. Imagine that. Like, nobody's really heard of you yet. You're just from this northern town. You're up from Galilee. Like, nobody really knows who you are. But Jesus, if you were to throw yourself off the temple and then these angels were to come down and catch you, imagine how spectacular that would be. I mean, this is how you build your platform, Jesus. This is how you get noticed. And if you want people to be interested in all of that stuff, you're probably gonna have to do something spectacular to get their attention. I mean, thank goodness we don't ever deal with those kinds of things, right? In 2021, now we're way beyond celebrity and being noticed and feeling like we have to do something spectacular. That was a like ancient problem a long time ago. But indulge me for just a moment, right? Imagine if we still dealt with that same feeling, right? But think, it's kind of a strange idea. I mean, we know that something feels off and Jesus shouldn't just do that. But then we think about all the other things in Jesus's life and we realize, well, Jesus did lots of incredible and spectacular things. I mean, he healed people who were dying. He fed thousands. He walked on water. He calmed storms. I mean, he even at one point goes through a locked door where his disciples were at in some kind of like reverse escape room. Like they weren't trying to get out, but Jesus was able to get in. It's crazy. Like Jesus did all sorts of spectacular things. Why would this occasion be any different? Well, what we know is that Jesus came to show us the heart of God the Father. He came to speak the truth of who we are as created or as children created in the image of God. He came to show us the Father's intent for us, his love for us, and his desire to redeem us back into a relationship with him. Everything in Jesus's ministry 
was meant to reveal the heart of God to those whom he loved. Every miracle, every teaching, even every word from the cross had this focus. Jesus was declaring that the kingdom of God is not far off. In fact, it's right here. It's close. It's right in front of you. That was his single focus. A jump from the top of the temple would have denied Jesus's ministry at its very core by taking the focus off the Father and placing it solely on Jesus the Amazing. This is why we can miss God's voice when we focus on being spectacular because we're no longer listening for God's voice. We're seeking ways to amplify our own voice, our own position, our own stature. This temptation can cause us to attract attention to ourselves in order to draw praise and adulation and applause from others. The antidote to it is humility. Now, humility is like a word we throw around a lot in church. We say it, but sometimes we don't actually think about what humility is. Sometimes we just think that, oh, that's thinking bad about yourself, but that's not what humility is at all. Humility is recognizing not to make too much of our position, nor too little. Humility is a right understanding of our place in the universe. It's when we understand that we are lovingly created with a God-ordained purpose, but we are not God ourselves. Humility reminds us we get to be the moon and not the sun, so to speak. I mean, both of those bodies are beautiful lights in the sky, but we know the difference between them. One is the source of light, while another reflects the light. Humility reminds us that we reflect the light, but we aren't the ones who create the light. We reflect God's glory with our life, but we are not the spectacular source of glory. There is no better way I know to cultivate humility than through ministry service. And I'm not just talking about vocational ministry, becoming a a pastor or a worship leader or, or that kind of thing. I'm talking about the regular, common, unspectacular service that can be done all the time around the church. I'm talking about things like serving at VBS this summer. Have you already signed up to serve at VBS this summer? Because if you haven't, why not? Like what else could be more important than introducing some kids to the love of God? I mean, what other things could be going on? You could make an eternal difference just by being here for a couple of days that week. Why have you not signed up to serve at VBS? You should find Glenda this morning and tell her, I'm ready to serve. And I think they're even having a kickoff meeting right after church. You should sign up for VBS. That's the kind of service that cultivates humility in our life. Find Billy and ask him how you can help at Impact Weekend. That will cultivate humility. Serve as a greeter each week and be the smile that somebody sees when they first arrive at church. That's the kind of service that cultivates humility. Maybe you just need to come up here sometime during the week and find a flower bed and pull out some weeds. That's the kind of service that cultivates humility. Humble service is the opportunity to stop listening to the half-truth of pursuing our own notoriety through some spectacular action. Instead, we humbly serve and we hear God's voice as we reflect his love and goodness to others. Now, the last temptation 
is I think one of the most difficult temptations for us to overcome. It's one of the most difficult even for us to eat, to recognize. But it says that the tempter takes Jesus and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the temptation for power. But it's not just the temptation for power, it's the temptation for power, even if it comes through immoral means. But Jesus rejects this offer and rejects this pathway to power. Now, the temptation to power can actually seem much like these other things, like a good thing on its service, on its surface. In fact, the temptation for power, when we use power for God's service, isn't that a good thing? Doesn't that seem like a winning bargain? In fact, shouldn't I try and get as much power as possible so that I can employ it in the service of God and others? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, that's the half-truth. It might sound good, but when we step back and look at the totality of Jesus' life, we realize that Jesus had a much different perspective. I mean, there's times when they're ready to make Jesus king. They're ready to make Jesus a ruler, and yet he slips through their midst. That's not what he's interested in. There's a time when they're having a conversation, Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus points out, you know how all the other rulers and the authorities, like they lord their authority over people. He says, not so among you. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Even after Jesus has died and resurrected and he and the disciples are standing around in Acts 1, it records that they ask, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this the time that you're going to be in power? And Jesus says, no, he rejects that offer because Jesus didn't cling to his divine power. Instead, he emptied himself is the way Paul describes it in Philippians and he became as we are. The temptation for power can affect all of us because all of us can imagine if we were in charge, things would be better, right? If I could get my way, everything would be right. I, I don't know how you, what you would do if you were given like the magic scepter where you were in charge of everything. Like what, what would day one look like? Uh, for me, it would probably be solving traffic by giving me my own lane on every road. That's what I would do because that's a problem I face. And if I was in charge of things, I'd fix that immediately. I would also have a strict counter at the 10 items or less line at the grocery store. I would fix that immediately because I think that's an evil in the world and I'd wanna get that right, right? If I had all the power, I would fix things constantly that I see are broken. I think I could make the world better. And power, this ability to set the agenda, to be in charge, looks as though it would be the solution to the problems that we've identified. But there's almost nothing that's harder to overcome than a desire for power because power always wants more power because at its core, it is an illusion, Power never gives us the security we desire. So we need more and more. We think the problem isn't with power, it's actually how much I have. You see, if only I had a little bit more, then I could solve things. Oh, the problem is I don't quite have enough influence. If only I had a little bit more, a larger platform, a more prominent place. If only the right people could get into power, then all the problems could be solved. But the more we get, the more we need the more we want and we realize that power is not the solution. 
Jesus rejects this temptation, but it's profound because he already had access to exactly what was being offered him. His divine power wasn't stripped from him. No, he freely chose to lay it down. Jesus chose to become powerless. So the half-truth of this temptation is this, that nothing good can come from powerlessness. Have you ever felt that? Like there's nothing good that could ever come from being out of power. Good things only come when you have authority, when you're in power. And to be without power means you give up any potential to make a difference in this world or to see an impact. But we can see that Jesus chose the path of powerlessness. When we, powerlessness, when we look at his life, we see that that was his choice. And it reveals to us a great mystery. The mystery that our ministry is that we're called to serve not with power, but actually with our powerlessness. You see, it's through powerlessness that we can enter into a connection with our fellow human beings, that we can form a community for the weak, and thus we can reveal the healing, the guiding and the sustaining mercy of God. You see, as believers, we are called to speak to people not where they have it together, but actually where they are aware of their pain. We're called to speak to people not when they are in control, but where they are trembling and insecure. We're called to meet people not where they're self-assured, but actually where they dare to doubt and to raise hard questions. One of my favorite examples of this type of service is Jana Pinson and all of the people who work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center of the Coastal Bend. You see, they aren't primarily known for the work that they do to amass power. That's not actually what you ever think about when you think about Jana or her team or the work of the Crisis Pregnancy Center. No, what you think about is the way they can enter into the most complicated situations in life. It has nothing to do with power or authority. No, they can sit across from somebody and look them in the eye and tell them that what you may see as a curse could actually be redeemed by God as a miracle. Jana and her team speak to people who don't have it all together, but where they are aware of their pain and insecurities. That's why I love it, and I'm so proud that Coastal Oaks is a partner with that group. But you see, the temptation for power is so irresistible because power offers us an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It's easier to be God than it is to love God. It's easier to control people than it is to love people. Because love for God and others, that's actually a colossally difficult task. It requires vulnerability It requires discomfort. It requires sacrifice. It requires submission, patience, assuming the best of others. When I love, I actually put myself in another's hands. But power requires none of that. Power allows me to dictate the outcome without the fear of being hurt. And that's why the temptation of power can be the reason we miss God's voice. Because power closes my ears to anything outside of me. Jesus tells the tempter, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus' answer reveals that only undivided attention to God can make a powerless ministry possible. 
As long as we divide our time and energy between God and anything else, we will forget that service outside of God will always become self-seeking. The pursuit of power will almost certainly cause us to miss God's voice because worshiping God's power and pursuing my own power are mutually exclusive. Worship is the acknowledgement of God's unlimited power and the reminder that even still he is mindful of us. When we realize who God is in worship, we must forfeit our platform and come to him as we truly are, broken, in need of rescue, and powerless. See, the half-truths exist in these temptations. There's the half-truth that you are what you produce. You're only as good as what you do. There's the half-truth. You must do something spectacular for your life to count. It's got to be noteworthy. And there's the half-truth that nothing good can come from powerlessness. Nothing good can come from your life if you don't have power. And when stated like that, it's clear to see that each of these temptations takes the focus off God the Father and instead puts it back on me, my productivity, my ability, my platform and agenda. But we must listen carefully for God's voice. The choice to align our focus solely on God is actually the choice to resist all three temptations. Undivided attention to God in worship is not particularly relevant. I mean, think about this morning. You didn't produce anything by participating in worship, right? It wasn't useful in the most practical sense. Undivided attention to God in worship is not spectacular or headline-grabbing. An undivided attention to God forces us to resist the mechanisms of worldly power, to give up our ability to control the world as we see fit, and instead to recognize God as sovereign ruler. Friends, if you want to miss God's voice, then settle for those half-truths. Settle for the temptations. But if you want to hear God's voice, then the first place to start is in worship. Not just in the singing of songs, but the acknowledgement with your entire life of God's rule and reign. And so in just a moment, that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing a song together. But it doesn't have to just be a moment where you sing a song. In fact, this could be a moment of worship, a time where you acknowledge God's rule and reign in your life. A moment when you stand quietly and say, God, I'm ready to hear for you because you are the one that is in control of everything. And I'm ready to listen. Perhaps it's a moment to confess the times when we have given in to these temptations. God, I have thought that I am only as good as what I can produce. I'm only worth something if I do something spectacular. And God, I've thought that my life should be wrapped up in trying to gain more and more and more power. Maybe it's a moment for confession. But whatever you do in this moment, this is your opportunity to worship.